Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, January 12th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight will not be one of my longer presentations. I think I've said that a few times these past couple of months. And maybe I'm repeating myself a little too frequently this evening. But these concepts are important, and I think they are worth repeating. Perhaps that is why Solomon himself repeated them. Ecclesiastes actually repeats itself quite often, and we're going to have to struggle through that. I really wanted to present two chapters of Ecclesiastes this evening, but after ten pages, I could only get through chapter three. So I cut it off there, and this is part two of our commentary On Ecclesiastes, it is subtitled, Vanity and Deliverance. Presenting the opening chapters of Ecclesiastes. We showed how this work was attributed to King Solomon from the earliest times, and also how it accords very well with the life of Solomon, once we realize that it must have been written in the later part of his life. Only in the life of Solomon do we find someone who could have had the experiences of this writer, who called himself the preacher, but who also claimed to be a son of David and king over all Israel. Then, in addition to these assertions, there is also the confession of an abundantly opulent lifestyle, which the historical scriptures describe for us in the life of Solomon. Writing this book, the preacher is now reflecting back on that life and assessing its value. Ecclesiastes was written to lament the plight of man, that none of the works of man seemed to be of any benefit to him at the end of his life, because he must leave the fruits of them to others. Realizing this, the preacher turned to mirth and decadence, but neither did he find any satisfaction in those things. Making our own assessment of his words, we explained that the preacher had purposely employed skepticism as a teaching method throughout his discourse. All is vanity, he proclaimed, but what he really meant to say is that all is vanity without God, something which is further revealed to us as we make our way through these subsequent chapters of his work. Ecclesiastes is poorly understood by many Bible readers, since the skepticism it expresses is often mistaken for scriptural truth. But rather, that skepticism is merely used as a literary device in order to demonstrate that without God, man has no hope at all. Regardless of what he does with his life, In the end, he dies like all other men, and all are eventually forgotten. Reading the book, Christians should understand that the conclusions of the skeptic are wrong because there is a God. The preacher makes that expression where he declares the importance of keeping the law. Here in this chapter, chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, the preacher informs us, that it is God who subjected man to this travail, for man to be exercised in vanity. If man is being purposely exercised in vanity, then there must be something for him beyond this life, or the exercise itself would be in vain. Here we must ask, does even God act in vain? Does Yahweh really act in vain? As we have also sought to elucidate in our previous discussion, there is a theme found in Scripture of which this work is a significant part. Inevitably, the punishment of Adam in Genesis chapter 3, the recognition that all of the life and labor of man is vanity in Ecclesiastes, and the later insistence in Ecclesiastes that man keep the commandments of God along with the explanation of Paul of Tarsus in Romans 
chapter 8, where he said that to transientness, or to vanity, the creation was subjected, are all elements of an important theme which helps to put Ecclesiastes into perspective and to show that Paul was merely teaching us the lessons of the Old Testament. But Ecclesiastes only suggests the expectation which Paul mentions without describing it explicitly, where the preacher advises men to keep the commandments of God. This is evident because if there were no such expectation, then there would be no reason to ever keep the commandments of God. Therefore, in Genesis chapter 3, we read, where Yahweh pronounced the punishment of transientness upon Adam for his sin. Because thou hast hearkened under the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. And thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. Till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art. And unto that dust shalt thou return. Then in the opening verses of Ecclesiastes we read, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man of all his labor, which he has taken under the sun? But in the very closing verses of this same book, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, we read the preacher's conclusion where he wrote, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment, with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Then finally, we have the explanation of Paul of Tarsus in Romans chapter 8. Indeed, in earnest anticipation, the creation awaits the revelation of the sons of Yahweh. To transientness, or to vanity, the creation was subjected not willingly, but on account of he who subjected it in expectation that also the creation itself shall be liberated from the bondage of decay into the freedom of the honor of the children of Yahweh. However, one must examine the context of the rest of Romans chapter 8 to find that by saying creation, Paul refers to the Adamic creation as opposed to other things which Yahweh had created. In the end, all is vanity, except that there is indeed a God who shall judge the works of men. That was the lesson of Paul and that is the lesson of the preacher for which reason he also gives the same exhortations to keep the commandments of God. With this we shall proceed with Ecclesiastes chapter 3. To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get or to acquire and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to rend or tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. 
The Adamic man is a special creature in Yahweh God's creation. As Solomon himself attested in his Wisdom of Solomon in chapter 2, that God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. However, when man sinned, he was subjected to transientness, as Paul of Tarsus had explained. While Yahweh God certainly also knew that ultimately he himself would deliver man from vanity. This we also see expressed in Genesis chapter 3, where the sentence of vanity was first pronounced. And it says, Behold, the man is become as one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. To know good and evil, that is also a lesson here in Ecclesiastes as Solomon had given himself over to licentiousness, and he learned that that was also vanity. So even for man, there is a time to be born, and a time to die, and he cannot escape his fate. Speaking generally, Paul had said in Hebrews chapter 9, that it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. And that is the same conclusion reached here by the preacher. What profit has he that works in that wherein he labors? There is a time for men to be born and to die. But in the meantime, man should take the necessity of his labor for granted, understanding that labor is a virtually inescapable part of his life. Paul of Tarsus went so far as to warn that he who doesn't work should not eat. So the lazy and slothful have no license to take advantage of our Christian community. So we read of the first man in Genesis chapter 2. And Yahweh God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Then when he sinned, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return under the ground. It is evident that there is also a time to plant and a time to pluck up, speaking of the sowing and the harvest, a time to break down and a time to build up, speaking of the vanity of the works of men, and a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together. When one plows a field or plants a garden, He labors to cast stones away, and then when one builds a wall or a road, stones must be gathered together. Therefore the preacher concludes, I have seen the travail which God has given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. As he proclaimed in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, man himself cannot make the crooked things straight, and man cannot even imagine the things which are wanting. So man does not have any power of his own over the creation of God, to make things right in his own eyes, or to change the circumstances of his vanity or transientness through his own labor or his own imagination. Neither can man create anything which is not transient. So he has no real lasting power over the creation. And in addition to the travails of his labor, there are times times to hate, times to make war, to kill. And the Hebrew word there is different from that in the commandment not to commit murder. To break down, to weep, to mourn, and to lose. And these are countered by times to love, to make peace, to heal, to build up, to laugh, to dance, and to gain. Ostensibly, there is nothing wrong with these negative emotions. There is a time for each of them. Just as there is a time for these positive actions and emotions. Ostensibly, the times for many of these things... And how often man may do or suffer one or the other 
may be determined in accordance with how well a man seeks to keep the commandments of Yahweh his God. In reference to these things, the preacher concludes, He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, and we will have a contention with this next clause, also he has set the world in their heart, so that no man can find out the work that God makes from the beginning to the end. And here we have a problem with a translation that has evidently endured for centuries. Where the King James Version says, He has set the world in their heart. It is not referring to the hearts of men, or they would certainly be able to know the work that God makes from the beginning to the end, just as well as they could know the laws of God, which should also be placed in their hearts. The New American Standard Bible has the same phrase to read, He has also set eternity in their heart. And Brenton's Septuagint follows the King James Version. Brenton's English Septuagint. But the Greek very well reads, He has also set the ages in their heart. Which would agree in essence with the New American Standard Bible. Of course, even in the King James, that word for ages, ahion, is often mistranslated as world in the New Testament. The Hebrew word is olam, Strong's number 5769, a word which has a variety of meanings in various contexts. Jesenius's Hebrew Chaldee lexicon has a definition for this word Spanning practically three columns, three columns, or a page and a half of very small print. There it is explained that the word primarily means a hidden or long time, a time hidden because it cannot be seen by man. Perpetuity, in regard to times past or future. It is then explained that of individual men it refers to all the days of one's life, among other similar meanings. Then, with an unusually convoluted twist of logic, which admittedly follows the Chaldee and Rabbinic usage, Jesenius argues at the very end of his definition that this word in this passage should mean the world, like the Greek ahion or eon which literally means ages and doesn't mean the world. Hence, the desire or pursuit of worldly things, more fully called agape to cosmu, which is love of the world in Greek, where he cites 1 John 2.15, or ahion to cosmu, which is ages of the world in Greek, where he cites Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2. Therefore, Jesenius concludes that here, this word refers to, quote-unquote, worldly things and the love of them as destructive to the knowledge of divine things. Then Jesenius says that this verse should be interpreted to mean that God has made everything beautiful in its time, although he has set the love of worldly things in their hearts, so that man does not understand the works of God. To that, I would say, bullshit. He then cites Ecclesiastes 8.17. But the preacher's words there do not support Jesenius' conclusion. All of this might sound good on paper, if one were to ever trust a rabbi. But it is not true, and it helps to show just how convoluted and perverse is Jewish and especially rabbinical thinking. There is only one word here, olam, and it describes nothing more than a span of time. It may correspond to the Greek word ahion, which is also properly a span of time, but it is a novel contrivance to extract an entire phrase from it and to give it attributes of meaning which it does not have by itself. We have shown that the New American Standard Bible and the Greek translators of the Septuagint 
both interpreted this word to signify nothing more than a span of time, even if they did not interpret it in the same manner which we shall interpret it. But by itself, it is not equivalent to the Greek phrases which Jusenius suggests, love of the world or ages of the world. That span of time, as we have seen in Jusenius's original definition of the word, may be very long, even eternity, or it may merely describe the lifespan of a man, depending on the context. We would also say that depending on the context, it could describe the lifespans of other things. The word doesn't describe the lifespan of a man if the subject is a dog. And in fact, as a digression, the word world itself originally came from the ancient Germanic words were, meaning man, and ald, meaning time, from which we get our word old. And that word were ald, that phrase, refers to the age of man. That's explained in the American Heritage College Dictionary in the Indo-European Roots Appendix, where it is said that the word world is from the Germanic compound, were ald, meaning life or age of man. So even the word world originally described a span of time and not a physical place. Furthermore, If God put it in men's hearts to desire worldly things, then all sin is the fault of God, as Adam and Eve were punished for a transgression resulting from their desire for worldly things. So according to Jesenius and the rabbis, all covetousness should be blamed on God, because God put it in the hearts of men. That is blasphemy. Leave it to the rabbis to justify their lusts and their covetousness by scheming up a way to blame it on God. That's exactly what Jesenius did here. But to the contrary, Yahweh God himself, especially in the person of Yahshua Christ, had warned his people not to follow after worldly things. As Paul had said in his epistle to Titus, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. If we follow the rabbis, we may begin to think like Jews. And here, both Jesenius and the King James translators had followed the rabbis. So where the preacher writes that God made everything beautiful in his time, ostensibly referring to the span of time in which Each thing exists that he had described in the preceding verses. Then he means to say, in continuance of that idea, that he has set the duration in their heart, meaning that the span of existence of each thing which God has created is a part of its original nature or fabric. The Hebrew word for heart is leb. Strong's number 3820. I'm convinced that is the word from which we get the English word love. And Strong's properly defines leb as the heart. But he also explains that the word was used very widely for the feelings, the will, and even the intellect. Likewise, for the center of anything. Therefore, When speaking of things other than man, we would assert that the word refers to the nature or the fabric of those things. So the lifespan of a flower 
is built into the nature of the flower itself, just as the lifespan of a man, or the duration of the seasons, or of wars, or of peace. God determined it all from the beginning of creation, and man cannot find it out for himself, because man ultimately has no control over that creation. That's what Solomon is saying here. The passage which Jesenius cited to support the rabbi's convoluted explanation does not support it at all. In the closing verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 8, we read, When I applied mine heart to know wisdom, and to see the business that is done upon the earth, for there also is that neither day nor night seeth sleep with his eyes. Then I beheld all the work of God, that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun, because though a man labors to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. Yea, further, though a wise man thinks to know it, yet he shall not be able to find it. So we would read verse 11 here to say, He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also he set, he has set the duration in their nature, so that no man can find out the work that God makes from the beginning to the end. Now the preacher speaks of man himself. I know that there is no good in them, but for a man to rejoice, and to do good in his life, and also that every man should eat and drink, and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is the gift of God. Man must be exercised in his travail, which is the punishment that he suffers on account of the sins of his ancestors, and especially of his first ancestor. For this we see in part in Romans chapter 5. For this reason, Paul says, just as by one man sin entered into the society, or the world, if you will, the Adamic world, and by that sin, death, and in that manner death has passed to all men, on account that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in a society, but sin was not accounted, there not being law. But death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not committed a sin resembling the transgression of Adam, who is an, who is an image of the future, but should not, as was the transgression, in that manner also be the favor. If indeed, in the transgression of one, meaning Adam, many die, much greater is the favor of Yahweh, and the gift in favor, which is of the one man, Yahshua Christ, in which many have great advantage. And then Paul asks a rhetorical question. And not then, by one having committed sin, is the gift? And he answers, indeed, the fact is, that judgment of a single one is for condemnation. That single one must be Yahshua Christ. But the favor is from many transgressions into a judgment of acquittal. Now, on the other hand, since, as Paul also explained, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, neither can we blame our ancestors for our transient state, as we ourselves have done no better with our own lives. And we cannot boast that we could have done better. All men have been subjected to transientness, yet all share equally, all Adamic men, in the expectation of being liberated from the bondage of decay, as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 8. So while the preacher had not yet heard the gospel of Christ, its promises are nevertheless revealed in the Old Testament scriptures which preceded the gospel. And the preacher is actually encouraging men to make the most of the trials which they shall inevitably have to face. As we have already discussed in reference to the opening chapters of Ecclesiastes, whether man enjoys the fruits of his labor or whether they are taken from him depends upon whether man is obedient to God 
that is evident in the curses of disobedience and blessings of obedience given to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 28. So if a man does enjoy the fruits of his own labor, that is a gift from God. The preacher later encourages men to keep the commandments of God, because in the end their works will be judged, whether they were good or bad. Of course, to understand the truth of this, one must also understand that there are races of people here who are not of God, and who cannot be considered under the term man. So these concepts do not apply to them. Perhaps the law of attraction applies to them. The children of the devil in the branches of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are not properly man, but God permits them to chastise man, just as he permitted the devil to chastise Job, and just as he permitted the princes of this world to chastise even himself, in the person of Yahshua Christ. But as the preacher also explains here, there is no good implicit in man. The commandments which man gets from God are good if men keep them, and men themselves are wicked when they do not keep them. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 7. Now, I was alive apart from the law once, but the commandment having come, the guilt was revived, and I died. That word guilt may have been translated as sin. He did not know he was doing evil until he heard the law, until he was reminded of the commandment, because man by himself is not good without the law, which comes from God. So man cannot be good without God. Therefore, Paul continues, And it was found to me that the commandment, which is for life, it is for death. For sin, having, having taken a starting point by the commandment, had seduced and killed me through it. Paul became cognizant of the destructive nature of his sin only through the law. The law alone warns us of the nature and consequences of sin. So he concludes, So indeed the law is sacred, and the commandments sacred, and just, and good. But man himself is not good. Man can abide by the law which is good, and by keeping it he can do good works. So Christ himself had said, as an example for men, which is recorded in Luke chapter 18, Why do you call me good? No one is good except one, Yahweh. Know the commandments. You should not commit adultery. You should not murder. You should not steal. You should not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. While denying that man is good, Christ points us to the law which is good. Some scoffers may claim that even the pagans whom they know have done good. However, the pagans cannot credit their heresy for any good thing they may have done. Our general society has been developed upon the foundation of the commandments of Christ for at least 1,600 years now, and many men generally adhere to them, even if they do not know the Christian scriptures, because they have been instilled into the fabric of our society in practice, even if they have not heard them in word. To a great degree, through cultural acclamation, the laws of our God were also instilled into the ancient Greek, Roman, and even the Germanic societies. So they also had many moral similarities. Paul commended the Romans for that very thing in chapter 2 of his epistle to them, which he had also explained in a different manner while accrediting the Galatians. Here the preacher continues by contrasting the works of God to the vanity of man. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it. In other words, nothing can be added to it. Nor can anything be taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. 
In Isaiah chapter 40, the permanency of the word of Yahweh is compared to the vanity of man, where we read, The grass withers, the flower fades, because the spirit of Yahweh blows upon it. Surely the people is as grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The permanency of his creation is described in the 24th Psalm. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods, meaning upon the rivers. Who shall ascend into the hill of Yahweh? Or who shall stand in his holy place? It is expressed again by Solomon in Proverbs chapter 3. Yahweh by wisdom has founded the earth. By understanding he has established the heavens. By his knowledge the depths are broken up and the clouds drop down the dew. There are countless other places where it is described and attested that man cannot know the full extent of it. Neither can man change it, as the words of Christ indicate where he said, And which of you, taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If, then, you are not able to do that thing which is least, why take thought for the rest? For this man should fear Yahweh, which means to submit to the word of God and to be obedient to his law. So in Job chapter 28, we read, Behold, the fear of the, the fear of Yahweh, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Then Solomon himself wrote in Proverbs chapter 1, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fear of the Lord is not to worry about being struck by lightning from heaven, but rather to come to understand his will for man, that man is subject to him and should therefore obey his word. The preacher continues, That which has been is now, and that which is to be has already been. And God requires that which is past. Here the preacher expresses somewhat differently the profession that there is nothing new under the sun. But then he adds the concept that God requires that which is past. But if the works of God are forever, then what God must require is an accounting for the deeds of men, which are past. So the preacher begins to speak of judgment and explains that the judgment of man is not just. And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there, and the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. The preacher is speaking of the courts of men, and perhaps even of the temple itself, that there were wicked men operating within the places where one should expect to find justice and righteousness. So it is also evident that Solomon himself was not able to prevent such wicked men from infiltrating these places. Later, in the 82nd Psalm, which was written by Asaph, we see it described that God stood amongst the people of his congregation and chastised them, where it says in part, How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? This is, of course, a prophecy of the ministry of Christ in Jerusalem. The psalm proceeds where God then exhorts the people of the people to judge justly and defend the poor, the afflicted, the fatherless, and the needy. But the problem of unjust judgment was far older than the time of Christ, as we read in the word of Yahweh in Jeremiah chapter 5. For among my people are found wicked men. They lay in wait, as he that set snares, and this is really talking about bankers and lawyers. They set a trap. They catch men. As a cage is full of birds, or a synagogue full of Jews, 
so are their houses full of deceit. Therefore they are become great and waxen rich. They are waxen fat. They shine with enough oil in their jerry curls. Yeah, they overpass the deeds of the wicked. They judge not the cause, the cause of the fatherless. Yet they prosper. And the right of the needy do they not judge. Shall I not visit these things, saith Yahweh? Shall not my soul be avenged on a nation such as this? The nation suffered because they accepted the persons of the wicked who were doing those things as they infiltrated the congregations, the courts, and even the temple. As the Apostle Jude had also explained, for there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before, of old, ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ, ostensibly imagining for themselves to be God. As the preacher exclaimed earlier, man is helpless to make the crooked thing straight, not even, he cannot even understand. I'm sorry, I must have had typeslexia. He cannot even understand the things which are wanting, never mind actually provide them. Now, indirectly admitting that he himself was powerless to stop the wicked, he yields to God even for this. Just as we have read in Jeremiah, And in verse 17 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he says, I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. David, the greatest of the kings of ancient Israel, exclaimed in the 139th Psalm, Do not I hate them, O Yahweh, that hate thee? Am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred. There's a time to hate. I count them mine enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. So Solomon, who may have surpassed even his father in power and in majesty, and who was greater than all of his successors, admits that not even he could undertake the judgment of the wicked, that he must leave it to God. Later on, Asaph, in the 74th Psalm, complains, and this is probably 350 years later, maybe even 400 years later on, he complains that thine enemies roar in the midst of thy congregations. They set up their signs, their ensigns for signs cat signs, maybe. But even seeing the problem, he could certainly not resolve the dilemma. As the word of Yahweh says through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32, If I wet my glittering sword, and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies, and will reward them that hate me. The only conclusion can be that all is not really vanity. That there is a God who will judge the righteous and the wicked. Otherwise, the wicked shall never be judged, and they shall prevail forever. So the preacher continues in reference to man himself. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, that they might see that they themselves are beasts. Man is an animal, just like all of the other beasts. We have no claim to be any better. Yet the only thing that separates man is something he may suppose to possess, but which he cannot actually see, and that is the spirit of Yahweh his God, treasure hidden in earthen vessels. So, Solomon said elsewhere, in a passage which we have already cited from chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, and which we cite quite often, admittedly, For if the just man be the son of God, 
He will help him and deliver him from the hand of his enemies. The promise in Luke chapter 1. Let us examine him with despitefulness and torture, that we may know his meekness, his humility, and prove his patience. Let us condemn him with a shameful death, for by his own saying he shall be respected. Such things did they imagine, and were deceived, for their own wickedness had blinded them. Solomon speaking of the wicked. As for the mysteries of God, they knew them not. Neither hoped they for the wages of righteousness, nor discerned a reward for blameless souls. For God created man to be immortal, and made him to be an image of his own eternity. The real story there is that the wicked can do whatever they want to man, but they won't prevail because God created those men whom the wicked have slain over these centuries. God created those men to be immortal. Paul of Tarsus also recognized this dilemma that man is but a beast in his fleshly nature. Although he did not quite explain it in those same terms, even if in certain instances he did describe wicked men as beasts. So in Romans chapter 7, Paul described at length the struggle between the two natures of Adamic man, the fleshly and the spiritual. The law being spiritual, as he also explains there, the man who claims to be spiritual the man who follows the Spirit seeks to keep the law and he finds life, whereby the fleshly man who departs from the law and follows after the way of the beasts finds sin and death. The man who follows Neville Goddard and Emmanuel Hill or whatever, that, Napoleon Hill, I'm sorry and the Kabbalah would find sin and death. In conclusion, Paul exclaims, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, which is the man of the spirit, which is the image of Yahweh's eternity. We expounded upon this in great length in part 9 of our Romans presentation in May of 2014 which was subtitled, The Two Natures of Adamic Man. In that presentation of Romans chapter 9, we had also concluded that unlike the beasts, the Adamic man has a spirit from Yahweh God through which he may have communion with God. And reading from 1 John chapter 4, Hereby know that we dwell in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Therefore, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, speaking of Israelites turned to Christ, that the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Yet the Adamic man in his fleshly state is still a beast. Therefore, Solomon had written in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men, that God might manifest them, and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. So unlike the other creatures, the Adamic man has a dual nature, and he may either follow one or the other, that of the flesh or that of the spirit imparted to Adam, which is the spirit of God. That is why in Jeremiah chapter 2, where the prophet laments the fornication of the children of Israel, who mingled themselves with the other races. He describes them as having created broken cisterns that can hold no water. Broken cisterns cannot hold water, and mongrel people cannot contain the spirit which God imparted to the Adamic man. And this invites a digression. Paul explained in Hebrews chapter 12 that a man is either a son or a bastard. Esau being a race-mixing fornicator, as Paul described in that same chapter, could not recover his birthright because his children were mongrels. 
and therefore they could not inherit the kingdom of God. Mongrels can only be beasts, and they have no other choice. But the children of God, when they depart from the spirit and follow the flesh, are also no different than beasts. Notice where we have just cited the wisdom of Solomon. In chapter 2, verse 18, there is no definite article in the original Greek. There is no definite article before the word for son. And it should say, For if the just man be a son of God, he will help him and deliver him from the hand of his enemies. There are men who may appear to act justly who are not sons of God. When they infiltrate our institutions, we have wickedness in place of judgment and iniquity in place of righteousness because they are not guided by the Spirit or the law of Yahweh written in the hearts of his children. Here, where the preacher continues to employ skepticism as a rhetorical device, he also continues to speak in relation to the fleshly aspect of man. From Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 19. For that which befalls the sons of men befalls beasts. Even one thing befalls them. As the one dies, so dies the other. Yeah, they all have one breath, so that a man has no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. All go under one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. As Adam was told, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return under the ground. For out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. In this same manner, even Abraham himself had admitted, as he was awestruck with the idea of communicating with God, as it is recorded in Genesis chapter 18, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. In other words, Abraham was saying, wow, I'm just dust and ashes. Who the hell am I to be able to speak to you? Man should be humbled by his low estate. And the fact that he indeed faces certain death, yet he cannot be certain of the promise of life thereafter, because he himself has now not yet witnessed it, as the preacher himself now asks. Who knows the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of beast that goeth downward to the earth. Abraham had died, and he was dust and ashes. But Christ had assured us that Yahweh is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he is not the God of the dead but the God of the living. So we as Christians should know that our patriarchs live and have hope that so shall we. That's our assurance. No man has an absolute proof of his own eternal nature. So all is vanity without God. And man can only possess an uncertain hope even once he recognizes that there is only hope in God. Therefore, man should be all the more humble. As Paul of Tarsus explained in Hebrews chapter 11, Now faith is expecting an assurance, evidence of the facts not being seen, for by this were the elders accredited. And of course the elders were accredited because they acted on account of their faith. They didn't just sit at home wishing to imagine things. They acted on account of their faith, as Paul goes on to describe throughout that same chapter. Because their actions concurred with their belief in God, they feared him and submitted themselves to his word. (coughs) Excuse me. But Paul also explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. 
and in that manner does man differ from the beasts. There he explains, where we shall cite the Christogenian New Testament, in order to avoid certain errant translations or interpolations found in the King James Version. Not all flesh is the same flesh, but one flesh of man and another flesh of beasts and another of birds and another of fish and bodies in heaven and bodies on earth. But different is the effulgence or the glory of the heavenly and different is that of the earthly. One effulgence of the sun and another effulgence of the moon and another effulgence of the stars. A star differs in effulgence from stars or from other stars. In this way also is the restoration of the dead. It is sown in decay. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in honor. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual. And the King James botches that clause. And just as it is written, the first man, Adam, came into a living soul. The last Adam into a life-producing spirit. But the spiritual was not first, rather the natural, then the spiritual. And that actually describes the process in Genesis chapter 2. The first man from out of earth, of soil. The second man from out of heaven. As he of soil, such as those also who are of soil. And as he in heaven, such as those also who are in heaven. And just as we have borne a likeness of that of soil, we shall also bear the likeness of that of heaven. Each Adamic man has two natures, the image and the likeness of God. As the wisdom of Solomon tells us, that the Adamic man was made in the image of God's eternity. So we must understand that here Paul made an analogy comparing Adam with Christ. Of course, each had possessed body and spirit. But in the analogy, Adam represents the fleshly nature, while Christ, being God himself, represents the spiritual, the spirit being a gift from God. Like Christ, if we as individuals are born from above, as he himself explained in John chapter 3, then we also have a heavenly body as Paul attests here, but we cannot see it so long as we are in the flesh. Solomon referred to some of these same things in other contexts in his Proverbs. In the Wisdom of Solomon, in chapter 16, he wrote, A man indeed kills through his malice, and the spirit, when it is gone forth, returns not. Neither the soul received up cometh again. Then from Proverbs chapter 18, The spirit of a man will sustain his infirmity, but a wounded spirit who can bear. Again in Proverbs chapter 20, The spirit of man is the candle of Yahweh, searching all the inward parts of the belly, drawing a connection between the spirit of man and the spirit of God. Psalm 32 is a psalm of David, and it says, Blessed is the man unto whom Yahweh imputes not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. So there may be men who, even if they sin, sin will not be accounted to them, because their spirits, being from God, have no guile. In this same manner, the Apostle John had written, that each who has been born from of Yahweh does not create wrongdoing or sin. His seed abides in him, and he is not able to sin, because from Yahweh he has been born. Nevertheless, we are warned that all men, even those born of God, especially those born of God, shall be judged by their works. There is a clear distinction between the fleshly and the spiritual natures of a man. And even Solomon admits in his wisdom that the life of a man is received up after his death. As we have said, the skepticism depicted here in Ecclesiastes 
is a rhetorical device illustrating that a man only has hope in God so that we can know that there is deliverance from vanity. So the preacher continues, Wherefore I perceive that there is nothing better that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? As we have already cited in our first presentation of this book, and as it says in Isaiah, but which this time we shall quote from Paul of Tarsus, from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, since he is also repeating other concepts which we have just read in Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs. But as it is written, from 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 9, but as it is written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man, save the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. And now we must ask, Why should a man rejoice in his works, if all of his labor is vanity, as the preacher had lamented in reference to his own labors? And as he asks here in verse 9, What profit has he that works in that wherein he labors? So we can only imagine that if a man has good works, that he may truly rejoice, because he shall have a better deliverance from his vanity. So we read in the words of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 16, The preparations of the heart in man, the answer of the tongue, is from Yahweh. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but Yahweh weighs the spirits. Commit thy works unto Yahweh, and thy thoughts shall be established. In that manner, Solomon agrees with Paul, that a man must seek to follow the way of the spirit, and not the way of the flesh, which is also the way of the beasts. Then in Proverbs chapter 24 we read, If thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, does not he that ponders the heart consider it? And he that keeps thy soul, does not he know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? This Polytarsus explains from a different perspective in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. For another foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man builds upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abides upon which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so is by fire. Likewise, we see in Proverbs chapter 11, the wicked work a deceitful work, all of their works burn up in the fire. But to him that soweth righteousness shall be a sure reward. Speaking, of course, of wicked Adamic men, Adamic men who do wickedly. All of the bastards, their very existence is wicked. They are the products of wickedness. And all the works of wickedness shall be destroyed. This we may also perceive in the 15th Psalm. A Psalm of David. Yahweh, who shall abide, I'm sorry, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? I made the mistake of taking a drink. Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He that backbites not with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, 
nor takes up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honors them that fear Yahweh. He that swears to his own hurt and changes not, in other words, he that keeps his oaths, even when it is to his own disadvantage. You have to keep your oaths, your promises, your word. He that puts not out his money to usury, nor takes reward against the innocent, he that does these things shall never be moved. In the same manner, Christ demanded that his disciples love their brethren. And we read in the first epistle of John in chapter 4, No man has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwells in us, and his love is perfected in us. Hereby know that we, hereby know we that we dwell in him, hereby we know that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, or the society. Whosoever, whosoever of the children of Adam, or Israel specifically, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love of God, the love that God has to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness, or free-spokenness, liberty to speak, in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment, and he that fears is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. By this we know what good works we should rejoice in. And by this one may know that if one is a child of God, Christ will indeed bring him to see what shall be after him. As the same apostle says in chapter 3 of that same epistle, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, and it does appear, I'm sorry, it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when we shall appear, when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There certainly is deliverance from vanity, if indeed one is a child of God. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.